We have a collective responsibility in the city of Chicago, the city we love, to ensure that this opportunity for healing begins now. Um, maybe it should have begun about 13 months ago, Mr. Mayor. That's you. Oh, yeah. Well, welcome back to the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and at 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. On 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, and coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, uh, RadioOrNot.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. (sighs) Ah. Usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you got me once again. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. And today, we're going to run the gamut from gratitude, it's Thanksgiving after all, to sheer, unadulterated outrage and anger. Yeah, today we begin in Chicago, where the city is once again reeling from gun violence. The difference is that this time, the murderous thug who emptied 16 rounds into his victim was a cop. So let's listen again to Ram Emanuel. So let's listen to Ram Emanuel again, um, advising the city on what they need to do to make things better. I understand that the people will be upset, want to protest when they see this video. But I would like to echo the comments of the McDonald family. They have asked for calm and for those who choose to speak out to do it peacefully. They said they do not want the violence to be resorted in, the na- in Laquan's name. What? But let his legacy be better than that. It is fine to be passionate, but it is essential that it remain peaceful. Wow. We have a collective responsibility in the city of Chicago, the city we love, to ensure that this opportunity for healing begins now. My heart goes out to the McDonald family on their loss. I want to thank all our community leaders here in the city of Chicago for their leadership and their partnership. What is he accepting an award? responsibility they take every day. It is now the time to come together as one city, show respect for one another. You know, uh, it uh, it's not funny. That's not why I'm laughing. I'm laughing at the absurdity of it all. Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago, who obviously knew what was on that videotape and has known about it for likely over a year, and he's lecturing the people of Chicago to stay calm and peaceful? Maybe, Mayor Emanuel, you should have thought of that a year ago when one of your police officers executed 
a 17-year-old boy who, sorry, was not lunging at anyone. Tuesday night, hundreds of protesters marched in Chicago after the release of that graphic videotape from October of 2014, yes, over 13 months ago, the videotape that showed a police officer shooting 16 rounds into 17-year-old Laquan McDonald. The chants that rang out through the streets of Chicago on Tuesday night. Who do you protect? Who do you serve? They chanted. 16 shots. 16 shots. At least two people were arrested among the outpouring of demonstrators who took to the streets. Protests appear to have calmed down in the early hours of Wednesday morning without any reports of damage, but protests are expected to continue throughout the week, including a demonstration at City Hall slated for Wednesday and another on the uh, Michigan Avenue stretch during Friday's expected holiday shopping Black Friday day. You know, it's a good thing that this murderous police officer was charged with first-degree murder. But what is unexcusable is the fact that they waited over a year to do so. It's not like the contents of the videotape were a secret to anybody, well, other than the public at large. But the, the powers that be in Chicago, they knew, they knew immediately was, what was on that videotape. And there are other oh, shall we say, uh, curious occurrences. Oh, like, you know, surveillance video from a nearby Burger King that were just erased, just wiped clean. And there's video of the cop wiping those videotapes clean, yet nothing was done. And Rahm Emanuel is lecturing the people of his city about staying calm? Wow. All right, let's move now to Minneapolis where things are just as crazy. Now, the events that the Black Lives Matter activists have been protesting uh, were certainly more recent. It was earlier this week that another young black man was shot dead by a white police officer. This happened on November 15th, a mere, what, 10 days ago? Eyewitnesses say that uh, Jamar Clark was shot in the head while handcuffed. That's disturbing enough in and of itself. That incident led to the occupation of the 4th Precinct in Minneapolis, where protesters have been peacefully protesting, um, well, since the fatal shooting on November 15th. Peacefully protesting is the important phrase there because uh, they set up an encampment they were basically occupying the area in front of the police station because these protesters, rightfully so, believed that the police were not protecting them. Them being the black lives who are in danger by the police, by the very same people who are charged with protecting them. So what happened on Monday night is um, a, a, a car full of masked men pulled up, and they started, uh, you know, um, infiltrating the encampment. When some of the regulars there realized that these were people they didn't know, and they asked them to identify themselves, the masked men wouldn't. The, uh, uh, this group of the protesters tried to escort them out of their 
uh, their their encampment. And as they were walking away, uh, these masked gunmen turned around and opened fire on the crowd, wounding, injuring five innocent people. Thankfully, there were no fatalities, and and, and thankfully, knock on uh, wood laminate here, it seems that all the victims will recover. And now, uh, today, we understand that three men have been arrested and are in custody. But you see, there are, there are problems surrounding this story, too, as if the story itself wasn't troublesome enough. Let's listen to uh, uh, Miski Noor. Miski Noor is uh, the spokeswoman for Black Lives Matter Minneapolis. And listen to what she has to say about uh, that shooting incident. What happened last night was a planned hate crime and an act of terrorism against activists who have been occupying the 4th Precinct to demand justice for Jamar Clark, a black man shot and killed by the Minneapolis Police Department. Despite earlier statements from police about the impending threat from white supremacists, the police instead maced citizen journalists and peaceful protesters. They made disparaging comments to those at the protests instead of taking the threat seriously. We reiterate that we have zero faith in this police department's desire to keep our community safe. Uh, Those are some pretty strong words, but they certainly weren't the strongest of of ones. They certainly weren't the strongest charges leveled at the Minneapolis police. No, those came from Raisha Williams. She is uh, with the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP. And in an interview on CNN, she leveled some really stunning charges. Now, Brooke Baldwin of CNN was doing this uh, interview with her from Paris. So Brooke Baldwin's in Paris. Raisha Williams is on the ground in Minneapolis. They're hooked up via satellite. And what followed was one of the more surreal live TV news interviews, um, uh, well, at least in recent memory anyway. With me now is the communications chair of the uh, Minneapolis NAACP. She is Raisha Williams. So what I'm hearing now, not just one arrest here, uh, but two. Tell me, is that what you're hearing? And what do you know about these uh, individuals who are in custody? Right. So we're hearing two at this time, but we don't necessarily trust that. We know that the police department is behind this. This is our personal belief after uh, receiving witnesses' accounts. Me personally being on the ground, Bob Crow, uh, Minneapolis Department union head, has uh, thrown Riddick wait, out wait, there. Wait, wait, wait. Forgive me. I have to interrupt you. I know there's a delay here in Paris, but you said you believe the police department is behind what? We believe the police department is facilitating the uh, injustice uh, at uh, bullying to the protesters, and we also believe that they are involved in this shooting. We know from blackboards and from uh, chat rooms and also videos that we have posted on our website that police um, that are from different counties, police from different districts, have come down to entice the protesters, have come down to a bully those the protesters. I understand you are there in Minneapolis and you know much more about this, but those are serious allegations you are just laying down on national television. And we are standing behind it. We do not back down from these allegations. Bob Crow. Where is your evidence that, that they were involved in the shooting? So we know that when the incident happened, police were lurking over the top of the precinct. Immediately once the victims were shot, 
protesters ran to the door of the precinct and they knocked on the door for help for ambulance. The police came out and one officer said, this is what you've been wanting and shut the door on us. It took 15 minutes for the police to even arrive and shortly after that they began to mace the crowd. So if you are not a part of the problem, if this is not something that you're trying to cover up, why would you not attend to victims that pay for your salaries? But do you have concrete evidence? I understand what you're telling me you heard when the door was open at the police precinct, but but what is your concrete evidence of this? We have concrete evidence. We have video footage, go to our website, of an uh, undercover cop getting into an unmarked car. We have the license plate. We've been running it. They have been coming down to our facility, to the precinct, where we have our city tent and our protesters, and they have been trying to entice us the whole time. So we believe... And we stand behind our belief that the Minneapolis Police Department are not protecting us. And therefore, they stand with racist white supremacists who want to, to destroy a peaceful movement. All over the country, when things like this have happened, riots have broken out. In Minneapolis, we have not rioted. We have not burnt anything. We have not looted. Even after we have been shot at and injured by white supremacists and the police did nothing but come on the scene and begin to mace our protesters, we still have not taken the streets angry. We're a peaceful group of all nationality, all religions, and all different points of views. But we all come together to stand in one righteous truth. Okay. Want justice for Jamar. All right. So there's this interview live on CNN on Tuesday with a, an obviously shell-shocked Brooke Baldwin. Oh, I've never heard such a thing. How could you possibly say the police were in cahoots with the protesters while well, Risha Williams told her story now, let me read to you uh, a firsthand account that I read on Facebook from a gentleman named Andy Pearson, who lives in Minneapolis. Nobody that I know, I was, um, uh, you know, I followed a link and a link and I got to his Facebook page. Lots of pictures, lots of stuff from uh, the 4th Precinct in Minneapolis. And here's what he wrote. I was at the precinct when this happened, saw the protest security folks peacefully moving the masked white supremacist terrorists away from the site. Heard the shots and saw people running both away from the shooting and towards it. Despite the heavy police presence in the immediate area, the cops seemed in no hurry to do anything. It was the protesters who worked to maintain order and safety. A few minutes before the shootings, one of the cops inside the precinct had popped up over the wall wearing a black face mask like the ones the white supremacists were wearing. You'd think, being so close and aware of the situation, they could have acted at something other than a snail's pace. Nobody was taken into custody, and one of the cops told the protesters, quote, this is what you wanted, end quote. The police then maced the peaceful demonstrators and ignored witnesses, including a friend of mine who had the name and address of a potential suspect. This man, who I don't know, then finished the post by writing, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, so I don't know what that time in our history felt like. I know that what happened last night is wrong, profoundly wrong, and makes me think on how much work there still is to do. When white terrorists can hang out at a police precinct, shoot a bunch of black people and walk away into the night, we have a deep and systemic problem. Boy, that's an understatement. I happen to be doing research, reading up on these two horrific stories out of Chicago and out of Minneapolis. 
this week, November, the end of November 2015. My God, I thought we were past this. How wrong I was. What I came across were were a pair of articles, uh, both written on Tuesday by Stephen Thrasher up at The Guardian's website. Now, regular listeners of my show, The Nicole Sandler Show at RadioOrNot.com, uh, we'll recognize the name Stephen Thrasher. He's been on the air with me many, many times over the years. We first spoke, oh, probably five or six years ago um, when he was writing for The Village Voice. I've kind of followed him around as I've become a huge fan of his writing. Um, the last time we spoke was about a, a month or two ago. He had just returned from Burning Man. Uh, Stephen Thrasher has been a participant, an attendee at Burning Man for a number of years, running now. And, um, but he's definitely, well, he's a minority anyway, but certainly in the minority at Burning Man, where he realized and wrote about the fact that there are very few African Americans at Burning Man. It's definitely worth going back through, uh, through Stephen Thrasher's archives at The Guardian to read his coverage of Burning Man. So you'll see he writes about really everything uh, in a beautiful manner. Well, yesterday... At The Guardian, Stephen Thrasher wrote two articles. The first one, earlier in the day, was titled, The Men Who Shot at the Minneapolis Protesters Want to Scare All Black People. And then at the end of the day, he wrote, Laquan McDonald, Senseless Killing Continues in Video After Video. Stephen Thrasher joins us next from, uh, well, San Francisco where he happened to be out there to do a talk about Burning Man and being a person of color at Burning Man. He said it was a a nice break from the reality of, of what he had to write yesterday. We'll take a break and come back with Stephen W. Thrasher of The Guardian next. I'm Nicole Sandler. It's the broadcast. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. One more Nicole. She's on live Monday through Friday from 10 to noon Eastern Time and repeating all day at RadioOrNot.com. Listen anytime. If we're grateful and we're thankful, then we're spiritual. If we're hiding, we're denying all the love inside. Oh, if only. Lay down your arms and be grateful and thankful and spiritual. 
Uh, and this Thanksgiving holiday week, um, those are those are the things that I would be truly grateful for. Instead, we're looking at um, insane situations happening right now in Chicago and in Minneapolis. And to help me try to make sense of the senseless, I invited my friend Stephen W. Thrasher to join me on the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com in today for the ailing Brad Friedman, who uh, hopefully will will take the Thanksgiving weekend to recoup and be back better than ever next week. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, Stephen Thrasher is writer-at-large for The Guardian U.S. He was named Journalist of the Year 2012 for the national, uh, by the National Lesbian and Gay Journalists Association. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I first met him years ago when he was writing for The Village Voice. Since then, his work has appeared in The New York Times, Rolling Stone, BuzzFeed, The Advocate, and of course now he's at The Guardian. Uh, follow Stephen Thrasher on Twitter at Thrasher. XY. And well, uh, how do you make sense of the senseless? I sort of had mixed emotions reading The Guardian yesterday. You wrote two pieces that I know had to, they, they were hard for me to read. They had to have been really difficult for you to write. They both concern this epidemic we have in this country where police officers, the people that we pay to serve and protect us, are seem to be going out, out and um, like open season on shooting young blacks. Uh, yeah, it was it was very hard to write both of them. Um, you know, in, in Minneapolis, it was difficult to. Um, it's a city that I know. I know people there, and it was difficult to see why the people been gathered. It was because of this terrible shooting um, of Jamar Clark, and then uh, and then these red supremacists, it seems, uh, showed up and uh, openly threatened them and ended up shooting five people. And I'm glad that the people will survive, but I think the idea of thinking that they're just, um, that their injuries were not life-threatening is as often as said is a wrong way to think about it because their lives were threatened in a very basic sense and their ability to live fully was very much threatened. Um, but it warmed my heart to see them coming out and protesting again 24 hours later, you know, with making a statement that they weren't going to be um, made to be unafraid to protest. And then we also uh, saw later that day um, with her, uh, the release of the shooting of uh, Laquan McDonald in Chicago. Mm. And it was just absurd to see this playing out yet again in yet another city. And, um, and Mayor Ron Emanuel acted as if uh, this officer had nothing to do with the Chicago TV uh, when he could very well still be on the government payroll right now if an independent journalist hadn't successfully filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get um, to get the tape released. And at that point, they, they have thrown this officer uh, under the bus. But in the meantime, it seems as if the Chicago Police Department uh, has erased video out of Burger King. They dragged their feet for 400 days trying to keep this video out. And then they tried to um, make... Uh, potential protesters uh, sound guilty by, by calling in the biggest mobilization of the force in some time and, um, and then also uh, making it sound like everyone was going to riot instead of focusing on the fact that the, one of their officers had executed a, a child. Right. We've all now seen the video. It's really sickening that it takes that kind of proof that these events are happening over and over and over again 
to get anyone to stand up and take notice. I mean, Rahm Emanuel at that, at that press conference yesterday before the videotape was released was was just shameful. I don't know how he could stand up there and implore everyone, you know, to to uh, stay peaceful, stay calm. I mean, really, the, he's the reason that tempers have gotten to the point where they have because again it's his police force right that held on to this tape for well over a year 13 months this happened in october of last year and just now finally an arrest is made and um you know and then stephen thrasher let me ask you this there are some who who cynical like me who say well they charge this cop with first degree murder have they maybe set the bar so high that they won't be able to con- get a conviction? And once again, the cops get away literally with murder. I, I don't you know, I don't know. I mean, I believe my, my colleague Zach Stafford for The Guardian, who's done fantastic reporting on this, and also in Homan Square, which is a secret jail they've been running yeah. uh, off, off the grid for some time, he is much better with the details. I, I believe off the top of my head that there hasn't been any kind of charge even for a Chicago police officer in about three decades. Wow. Um, so you know, these things are you know extremely hard to prosecute, and that's not by accident. The system is made to work this way. Um, but I think there's a really interesting similar dynamic happening both in what in Minneapolis and in Chicago. That in Minneapolis, these white men showed up and terrorized everybody, and were able to shoot um, you know people there. And and it's really common with seeing these white men just openly walk around with guns at mosques in the south and in Ferguson. Uh, the the Oath Keepers have turned up in protest in Ferguson, uh, and uh, you'll see individuals just probably saying we're going to walk around an open carry and scare them with our guns. And they're always white men, uh, but this excuse is used repeatedly that um, there's something suspicious about all black people that they can be killed anytime for even the possibility of having a legal weapon. And so we've seen with, you know, Tamir Rice just playing at the toy with John Crawford and just looking at a toy gun in the store in a state where, of course, toy guns are legal, but also real guns are legal to be openly carried. Um, and that's a just, it's used as a justification to kill these young men. Mike Brown and Darren Wilson, it was the anniversary of him yes. getting off from a grand jury yesterday, actually. Right. Um, and the anniversary of Tamir Rice being killed was, I believe, on Monday. Right. So, I, I right. mean... It, it, and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's just a really sick coincidence. Sometimes the universe does ridiculous things to us. But I'm wondering if there isn't some sort of perverse, ugly commentary there by all this happening at the same time. Or maybe it's just something in the air this time of year. Then there's another issue I want to ask you about. Um, Stephen Thrasher is with us from The Guardian. There were some allegations made by... Uh, a woman named Raisha Williams, she is with the NAACP in Minneapolis, and she, uh, live on, on CNN the other day, threw out an allegation. She she alleged that the police at that 4th Precinct were basically in cahoots with these white supremacists who came in and shot up the place. And yesterday on, on this program, on the broadcast, I played a little bit of the audio of a videotape that... Uh, allegedly these white supremacists made on their way to the rally, flashing their guns, talking crap. Um, I'm wondering if this kind of um, 
hubris, this kind of just blatant disregard for for decency and and other human beings. Uh, These people are emboldened in these kind of attitudes by someone like a Donald Trump who wears his racism and his bigotry proudly. Do you think his attitudes, his rallies are emboldening these haters, the the bigots to to uh, be more vocal in their hatred? I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's true. I mean, it certainly is reflective of where the zeitgeist is now. And even though I don't have any evidence about the Minneapolis Police Department being directly in cahoots, um, certainly systemically and historically, there is a very clear link there. You look at, at lynching history, uh, the people under the hoods were often local law enforcement. Um, and now when you look at these modern lynchings, they don't even have to be under the hood. Yeah. <laughs> there are a thousand people that have been killed by law enforcement this year. It's, it's statistically and outrageously uh, more likely to be black people. Black people, as we've shown in The Guardian, um, we're doing one of the first ever counts of a full year of police killings. And we found that black people are twice as likely to be unarmed as white people uh, when killed by the police. And I think that, you know, what you're describing, whether or not the police were actively egging these people on. They're passively part of a whole system that does. I mean, white men are allowed to walk around with a gun and terrorize people and say that that is their Second Amendment right. Black people are killed for the the suspicion of any kind of possibility of of having a a legal weapon. Uh, And I saw this, I'm in San Francisco right now, I saw something like this play out the other day. I was in a diner where a restaurant was uh, a white man walked in and just started very drunk, started berating everybody, berating the Latina waitress. The police came and they were so calm and chill. And he, I saw the cop was black and I saw him physically push the officer, push him away, run back into the restaurant, terrorize us all. They didn't do anything to this guy. And I know I would be blown away if I, if I pushed an officer away. Um, and and I think that you know when when the police see these these men walking around with guns, threatening Muslims, threatening black protesters, they are emboldening them. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, and th- then there's a- another part of the story from Minneapolis, the the fourth precinct shutdown story, that's so disturbing. Reading firsthand accounts, and I've read different accounts from people who were there when these masked gunmen open fire on the protesters um and that is that the police did nothing the police almost made uh, gave the gunmen a, a clear getaway and then started harassing and macing the protesters yeah. who were left behind and the journalists who were there to cover it um, making yeah. the allegations of some sort of, uh, you know, working together relationship not so far-fetched. Yeah, that is, that's everything that I've read from there. And um, people I've talked to who were there uh, throughout the occupation outside, they said, yeah, the police are always, you know, incredibly suspicious of them, mean to them, threatening towards them. And it's it's such a strange thing. You know, I keep coming back to so I was in the zoo uh, a couple weeks ago, and thank God for that, because it's the rare time I get to cover a win or an organization uh, for a protest that's about, uh, you know, that's about something other than uh, Black Death, actually. Right. Like protesters have a victory, which was great for all of our mental health, I think. Those of us who cover it and those who participate who are Black. Um, but the, there was this insane, uh, you know, desire to get inside the camp and being upset about 
not being able to get inside tents of the protesters and saying that that was a violation of free speech. Of course, we never hear that, either, you know, when corporations set up concerts in public parks or Hillary shows up to speak in a public, you know, public place and the Secret Service cordons off places. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to me to think through they will defend the First Amendment and the Second Amendment for white men walking around with guns. But the police were not going to defend the First Amendment of those protesters out there and say, hey, we have to protect them. Right. We have to protect their First Amendment right to be camped out here. We need to keep them from being shot or killed. In fact, we're actively going to mace them when they're hurt. Um, so the the cahoots analogy works out very well. Yes, it really does. And, th- and that's what the evidence seems to suggest. Now, again, we don't have proof positive, but, you know, sometimes when uh, there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, Stephen Thrasher, I know you got to go soon, but you brought up being at Mizzou after uh, the the students there won a great victory. Uh, the the uh, president of the university system in the state, of, the whole state of Missouri, had proved himself to be insensitive, to put it nicely, about racism, institutionalized racism in the university system in Missouri. And the students said they had a clear demand. They said, we want him out. And sure enough, he resigned. Um, I mean, what a great victory. And you wrote in the piece, uh, you wrote a piece, I joined the black student university walkout because enough is enough. And you said how wonderful it was to be, for once, marching you know, uh, in favor of a victory, like a positive thing, as opposed to marching because another black kid was shot dead by a cop. Um, but in the wake of this, and then the, the, the black student university walkout that you participated in at NYU, of course, there's the backlash, right? There's, um, uh, we saw at, at Mizzou, this journalism, uh, I guess, the adjunct professor shooing the media away and her question was are you with the press then go away get out of here we don't want you here i mean there's almost this fight against the first amendment um like there's a battle going on over what's right are you noticing this on campus um yes no i mean i i found a lot of that over highly overplayed uh i was you know, I was there, and I I was just covering as a journalist in Mizzou. Uh, when I did my doctoral research at NYU, I did actually end up joining the protest that happened the following week. Uh, but I was in Mizzou. I didn't, you know, I found it really interesting. I initially was, my feelings were hurt when I saw that they didn't want to talk to journalists. Um, but then I thought, well, if I take myself out of the equation, what is it they're saying? And they're saying something I've always said, as long as I've learned in this business, that journalism is... Uh, you know, it's systemically racist. And I know this from having worked in it, from usually being the only black person in the organization I work in. I never had a black editor until I was 35. Um, that was only for about six months, and I haven't had one since. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so every critique they have of the media is something I can sign on to. And they basically just said they wanted to, you know, they didn't want to talk to most journalists. They didn't talk to some people. Eventually they talked to me a bit. Um, but, that made me think about how often journalists will just sort of march into a space of demands that mm-hmm. people talk to them, and the people don't have to. You know, certainly uh, politicians don't just talk to journalists whenever they demand they do, even if they are wielding great power over public life and public money. And um, the Black Panthers in the talk to journalists. I mean, many people are strategic about speaking to journalists, um, but I think that journalists and many of us in our society were not used to having the terms of any encounter dictated to us by young black people. And so it's actually kind of 
dynamic where they they are sort of asserting power where they want it. They're not they're not asking for things. They're making demands. You know, they're not asking the media, please give us good coverage. They're saying, no, we'll talk to you if we want to or not. Right, and um, that's so fine. It's a really interesting dynamic. To right, see. <laughs> but what I'm seeing—I mean, what I saw some footage of was them saying, "Media, get out of here. You're not welcome here." And uh, you know, there, there's a problem with that. And it's what the Trump campaign is now doing. And apparently, any reporters who are in the press pool who are covering the Trump campaign is in a pen during the rallies. Now they've decided if any of those uh, members... But they've always been like that in political... I mean, yes. I cover political things often, but you're always sort of... In, if you're covering Barack Obama, if you're going to the White House, you're, right. you know, you're put in one area. And what was highly overblown, I mean, they were telling media that they couldn't come into sort of this 30-foot diameter circle where the tents were. I don't feel like I can just walk into someone's right. house. And, no, I mean, maybe true. some reporters do, but if I saw a homeless person in a cardboard box, I would not say, well, I can go into your box because you're in a public park. Right. Um, no, I agree with you. No, the point the point I'm making, though, is that the Trump campaign has now decided that any journalists who want to leave their pen to use the restroom must be escorted there and back. They want to control the message. Yeah. And I think that's when you cross a line and it gets really dangerous. Anyway, look, I mean, I guess, you know, the silver lining here is that we're all talking about this and that that something's got to give. I mean, do you have that feeling that something's got to change because we can't keep going like this for too much longer? Yes, yes. And, and things are changing. <laughs> it's sort of unsettled, but things are changing. All right. Well, on this Thanksgiving, uh, we'll we'll hold on to that and hope that they change quickly and for the better. And again, I'll say we all have a role in that. It's how we vote and that we do vote. Stephen Thrasher, I know you, you've got to run. I thank you so much for your time today and for the great work you do. I'll make sure there's uh, links to your works over at The Guardian at the Brad blog and uh, at RadioOrNot.com as well. It's always a pleasure. I really thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. Stephen W. Thrasher. Follow him on the Twitters at ThrasherXY. And uh, I will make sure to have a link to his author page, his writer page at The Guardian, posted at thebradblog.com along with uh, this show. I am Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com, filling in for the ailing Brad Friedman today. Both he and Desi are under the weather. Uh, Hopefully they'll have like turkey soup or something for Thanksgiving and they'll be feeling better. I'll be with you again for another couple of shows and then uh, they'll be back next week, hopefully uh, raring to go and better than ever. But we've got some serious issues we're talking about here, right? One of the questions I raised with Stephen Thrasher was um, whether or not he agreed with me that the attitudes, the open bigotry and racism Uh, pushed out from Donald Trump is having an effect, maybe emboldening uh, the racists. Uh, It's something we need to think about, and we'll do that next. More of the broadcast on the way with me, your guest host today, Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. Don't go away. I'll be right back. This is the day we stop denying there is an issue. And this is the day we do our part. A carbon tax is coming for Alberta's dirty tar sands. The viciousness of a handful of killers does not stop the world from doing vital business. Obama says U.N. climate conference in Paris must go forward. 
Senate Republicans vow to monkey wrench international climate agreement. Plus, FDA approves first ever GMO salmon for human consumption. Mmm, you are what you eat. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment 2015 hottest year ever republicans claim thermometers just a theory (laughs) that's just about where we are this is your green news report okay desi doyan well we are going to be off for a few days for the holidays But it sounds like you are sending us away with some very, very good and very big news. Yes. Out of Alberta, Canada. Huge news. A major shift in environmental policy for Alberta, Canada, the home of the tar sands. It is a literally a game changer. It's a bold, bold step. If I were the owner of a coal company, I would prefer that this announcement hadn't been made. Alberta's new premier, Rachel Notley, on Sunday announced that Alberta will launch a carbon tax beginning in 2017 and will put a cap on carbon emissions from its tar sands oil industry. This is the day we start to mobilize capital and resources to create green jobs, green energy, green infrastructure, and a strong, environmentally responsible, sustainable, and visionary Alberta energy industry with a great future. This is the day we step up at long last to one of the world's biggest problems, the pollution that is causing climate change. Possibly even more important, Alberta has set a target to phase out coal entirely within 15 years and has also set a target to cut methane emissions from natural gas production in half within 10 years. The carbon tax revenue will be invested in clean energy technology and on rebates for consumers to offset any projected higher energy costs. What an amazing turn of events. Just less than a month ago, we were still talking about the Keystone XL pipeline. Would it be approved or not? And here we are in Alberta, the home of the tar sands. Not only is there no longer a plan at the moment for the Keystone XL pipeline, but they're talking about phasing out the tar sands themselves with a carbon tax. Just amazing turn of events. And it is intended to help Canada have a strong showing, as they call it, at the United Nations climate talks. Those begin in Paris on November 30th. That's when world leaders are going to meet for the final negotiations to create a comprehensive international agreement in which all countries will commit to cutting their greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous global warming. Massive planned public rallies and parades have now been banned in Paris due to security concerns in the wake of the Paris attacks. But the talks themselves must go on, President Obama said at a summit of Southeast Asian nations in Malaysia on Sunday. It is absolutely vital for every country, every leader to send a signal that the viciousness of a handful of killers does not stop the world from doing vital business. And that Paris, one of the most beautiful Uh, enticing cities in the world uh, is not going to be cowered uh, by uh, the uh, violent, uh, demented actions of a few. We do not succumb to fear. Environmental groups are launching local marches and rallies around the world to help pressure world leaders to reach an ambitious agreement since they are not allowed now to march in Paris.
But regardless of what results out of Paris, Republicans in Congress have already vowed to block any agreement in any way and every way that they can. Of course they have. U.S. negotiators are pushing for the international agreement to not be called a treaty and to make it voluntary to avoid triggering Senate review. Why don't they want to call it a treaty? Well, if it's not a treaty, there's no requirement for the Senate to advise and consent. Oh, tyranny. The Republican majority in the Senate has promised to block billions in planned funding for poor countries that would help them build clean energy resources and prepare for the coming impacts of climate change. But I thought they wanted to help the poor. I guess not. I guess they were just pretending. Finally, the Food and Drug Administration has approved the first ever genetically modified animal for human consumption. Mm. The controversial salmon contains genes from other fish species that will help it grow two times faster than wild salmon. Promoters say that will reduce the amount of feed needed and would help reduce pressure on our overfished oceans. Critics, however, warn that the GMO salmon could still escape into the wild and impact wild salmon populations. The FDA will not require labeling for that GMO salmon product. Frankenfish escaped into the wild. What could possibly go wrong? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. La mer Qu'on voit danser Le long des golfes clairs a des reflets d'argent, la mer des reflections. Oh, yes, I do thank you for uh, welcoming me so warmly here at the broadcast. Uh, during this Thanksgiving week, Brad and Desi are out, uh, well, you know, having turkey soup, I guess. They're both a little under the weather. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com, always ready to step in and uh, take over if need be. You know, on this Thanksgiving week, I think it's important, especially when the world is going crazy around us, to take a moment and count our blessings. So I thank you for listening. Thank Brad and Desi for having me. And want to thank Kentucky outgoing Governor Steve Bashir, who um, gave the state a little parting goodbye. Yes, on Tuesday, an executive order from Democratic Governor Steve Bashir of Kentucky will automatically restore the voting rights of people convicted of certain felonies as long as they meet specific criteria. So on his way out the door... Soon-to-be ex-governor of Kentucky, Steve Bashir restores the voting rights to over 100,000 ex-felons in the state of Kentucky. Way to go, governor! See, we need more like him. And the rest of my thank yous I think I'll say privately, you know, because we can do that on Thanksgiving, too. But it's hard to remain upbeat and positive when, again, the world is going crazy around us, right? Uh, you know, we, we hear the racism, the ugliness coming from Donald Trump, where uh, three African-Americans went to one of his rallies in uh, Birmingham last week and got beaten up for their troubles. I can't help but think that a lot of the ugliness, the openly hostile, racist, bigoted comments made by clueless white people to people of color is because they've been emboldened 
by the ugliness of Donald Trump. Uh, the man that was, uh, was yeah. I don't know, you say roughed up, he was so obnoxious and so loud. He was screaming. I had 10,000 people in the room yesterday, 10,000 people. And this guy started screaming by himself. And they did, I don't know, rough up? He should have been, maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. This was not handled the way Bernie Sanders handled, handled his problem, I will tell you. But mm -hmm. I have a lot of fans, and they were not happy about it. And this was a very obnoxious guy mm -hmm. who was a troublemaker who was looking to make trouble. But well, Donald Trump, I didn't get to see the event. Okay, boy, it takes one to know one, right? Uh, very obnoxious guy who's looking, who's a troublemaker, he's looking to make trouble. You know, when he says things like this. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes. Uh, blood coming out of her wherever. And even worse than that. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. Well, how magnanimous of him, you know, and then, well, it, this is how he talks to reporters. Are you aware that the term anchor baby, that's an offensive term. People find that hurtful. You mean it's not politically correct and yet it, everybody uses it? Look it up in the dictionary. I, so it's you know offensive. What? Give me a different you, term. Give me a different term. It, what else would you like to the say? Child, the, the American born child of an undocumented immigrant. You want me to say that? Okay. Said, no, I'll use the word no, anchor I'm, baby. I'm saying, Excuse why, me. Why do you have to use that phrase? I'll use the word anchor baby. Excuse me. Excuse me. But he's not the only one. Jeb Bush, oh, excuse me, just Jeb exclamation point, because God forbid you admit that his last name is Bush, last week was uh, right there saying, well, you know, uh, you can just uh, only allow the Christian refugees in. And when the reporter asked, well, how can you tell if someone's Christian? He said, well, you know, you, you, you know, you can. Uh, he clarified <laughs> yesterday on the radio in New Hampshire. I do believe that uh, in, in these cases, and I've, I've used the example of Syrian Christians that are, um, but for the United States and but for the world community, they'll be slaughtered, beheaded, raped, pillaged yeah. because of their faith. I think we have, uh, we have a moral obligation to support them. Yeah. And if you can tell when someone is a Christian in, in the Middle East. I can promise you that. Uh, it's by name, by by their, you know, where they're born, their by birth name, certificates, by where there they're are born? ample means by which to know this. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, you know, there is big news in the world of uh, the fake news channel. Um, Elizabeth Hasselbeck from Fox and Fiends is leaving the show. So there's a prime opening for a female right-wing nut job. And it was so nice of Morning Joke and his trusty sidekick, Meek Awe, to let Nicole Wallace, former um, uh, Bush flunky, and, oh yeah, one of the people who foisted Sarah Palin upon us in the McCain campaign, yeah, that one, they let her do an on-air audition this morning on the Morning Jerk Show. Um, by the way, the person she's talking about here, who she never mentions by name, is President Barack Obama. He's a father. I don't understand why he can't look into the camera and say, if you've got kids, you know, traveling home for the holidays, I understand you might be afraid to put them on an airplane. You don't have to be. Here's why. I don't understand why he can't tap into his own humanity. He musters more of it when he talks about saving the planet than he does when talking about keeping kids safe, 
around this time of year when people are traveling. People are scared, and that's not a partisan issue. He's been incapable for a nanosecond since since the uh, Paris attacks of speaking to the country as a human being about the fact that they're scared. He's reduced any rational fear. People don't understand the refugee program. People don't understand how oh exhaustive the vetting is. And, and he blamed anyone who was afraid. He called them cowards and said, you're afraid of orphans and women. He has been a jerk. Oh, really? He has been a jerk? Have you looked in a mirror lately? Just saying. And we wonder... Why the bigots, the racists, the gun-toting jerkwads of the world are so emboldened? Because that stuff is said by presidential candidates, uh, former White House uh, communications directors, and TV personalities with no consequences. I'll tell you what I would like for Thanksgiving. I would be grateful if these idiots would keep their mouths shut. But that won't happen. So therefore, I'm grateful that Stephen Colbert is back on my television. I want to take this time to mention something I'm thankful for. Donald Trump. Oh, no! Because he gives all of us on TV something to talk about. He's all over the newscasts. He was on SNL. And if you turn on CBS right now, there's some guy talking about Donald Trump. And, yeah, because but it's now, Stephen Colbert. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But now, Trump is getting a lot of heat for something he said about Muslim Americans' reaction to the attacks on 9-11. Hey, I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering what? as that building was coming down. What? You know, the police say that didn't happen at all. Those rumors have been on the internet for yeah. some time. So did you meet, misspeak it did yesterday? Happen. I saw it. There were people over in New Jersey that were watching it, a heavy Arab population that were cheering as the buildings came down. Not good. No, not good. Also, not true. Boom. But not true. <laughs> yeah, there's that. But if it was, he was apparently the only person who ever saw it because there is no evidence the alleged celebration ever took place. And I had my crack footage team look for it. Nothing. I gotta tell you, my guys are the best. Anything I name, they can find it instantly. Here's a challenge. Uh, let's see, can you guys find uh, a woman giving a psychic reading to a possum? Hmm. Okay, it's there on the interwebs. Yes. <laughs> Boom! See? Two possums. There you go. What else? And yet, Trump claims that he saw it. And, and he has evidence. Donald Trump will be speaking here in just a few minutes. He called me late today to once again defend his claims, telling me that although he doesn't remember where exactly he saw that video, he does know he saw it sure. because he has, quote, the world's greatest memory. <laughs> That's right. That's right. He can't remember exactly where he saw that video. Yeah. But he can remember that he has the world's greatest memory. That's right. And. Amen. And? And Trump doesn't just have a perfect memory of the past. When it comes to the terror threats facing our country, he can also see into the future. I wrote a book in 2000. And in the book, I mentioned Osama bin Laden. I said, bad guy, 
He's going to do damage to our country. And we better do something to stop him. I said Osama bin Laden's going to okay. try and come in and do some big damage. Don't forget, in my book written in 2000, 2000. I was the one that yeah. predicted well, Osama bin Laden was well, trouble. If you read the book, it says Osama bin Laden. Yes. Trump predicted that Osama bin Laden was threatening America all the way back in the year 2000, the same year bin Laden was linked to the bombing of the USS Cole, right. and only two years after bin Laden was indicted for the embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya, oh, yeah. and only seven years after bin Laden was implicated in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. <laughs> That's well, spooky. It's yeah. like Trump has some kind of fifth sense that lets him see what's in newspapers and on TVs. That's why I'm so thankful and, and grateful <laughs> that Stephen Colbert is back on my television. And Nostradonald's not the only one with this power. <laughs> All right, I, I'm going to cut it off there. I just wanted to get the Nostradonald line in there. Donald Trump, Ben Carson, Jeb exclamation and the rest of them marco rubio ted cruz oh my god that's the reason the bigots are so emboldened because they hear those people say this crap and nobody pushes back it's time we push back happy thanksgiving everyone thank you for listening thank you brad and desi feel better I'll see you next time. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com on the broadcast. Oh,